Welcome to the Innovation Engine Podcast. I'm Will Sherlin, and on this week's episode of the podcast, we'll be looking at the connection between innovation and customer experience, how to create the optimal customer experience in a world where those interactions increasingly occur online, what customer experience means for the 80% of companies that are in the services space, and why creating customer experiences that leave lasting impressions is a must for companies that want to maintain long-term success. Here with us today to discuss all that and more is Janine Ray, founder and CEO of Motive Strategies and an expert in customer experience, design strategy, and innovation. For more than two decades, Janine has worked with large enterprises to help improve their innovation capacities, including Procter & Gamble, AIG, Hewlett Packard, Microsoft, Kraft Foods, the World Bank, Johnson & Johnson, and AARP. Bloomberg Businessweek magazine named Janine one of its Magnificent Seven Innovation Gurus and Best Leaders of the Year, based on her groundbreaking work in the study of service innovation. Prior to forming Motive, Janine led innovation consultancy Peer Insight as its president for six years, and before that she was on the senior leadership team of IDEO for seven years. She served as an adjunct professor at Georgetown University's McDonough School of Business for more than a decade and is a regular contributor to HBR.org's blog on business management, as well as writing for publications such as Design Management Review and Fast Company. Welcome to the podcast, Janine. Thanks, Will. It's great to be here. So very happy to have you. Let's start things off by defining what exactly we mean, Janine, when we talk about customer experience. So when I hear that term, my brain tells me something along the lines of the end-to-end experience I get when I walk into a brick-and-mortar store to purchase something. Is that accurate, or is there more to customer experience than that? You have it right when it comes to uh, the fact that customer experience is an end-to-end thing, but it just doesn't happen in, in retail environments. What companies need to understand is that their customer's journey starts way before they ever come into direct contact with their firm. Two areas, for example, that come to mind are, one, the awareness phase, where people are learning about your offerings. Most education for products and service happens online these days, so understanding the process under which your customers choose you over others or not is extremely important. Showing up where people are also contemplating a purchase is also important. Um, The other place where it happens is what happens after a purchase. How does that cycle unfold, and what causes your customer to go back into the market and look for your offerings again? Social media plays a big role here, as customers often want to talk about how good your products or services are working out for them. It's a good idea to provide a feedback loop to get directly back uh, to you to help avoid the trap of their posting any any bad things on Facebook, for example, which a lot of executives fear these days. Okay, great. And and as you mentioned, on a lot of online research goes into the customer experience journey these days. So it can be difficult to know or understand all the different touch points that might influence a sale or a possible sale over the course of time. And one way you do that at Motive is through what's called customer journey mapping. So what is customer journey mapping and how does understanding all the different points of the customer journey map open up possibilities for innovation? That's a great question. Well, we call customer journey mapping the backbone of customer experience design. Um, There's a white paper on our site that explains the basics of this, including how to identify pain points, things called moments of truth, which are really important 
points where the customer experience is made or broken, and also pleasure points, things that people are um, happy about and, and that the things uh, uh, you want to continue. So you know, here's why it's important. An experience is judged by the entire sum of its parts. That's why customer journey mapping is so important. So customer journey maps are really research tools that allow you to show what your customer goes through to, quote, get a job done, such as visiting a doctor or making a bank deposit or going from point A to point B. And so every point in the process is studied. And this is where you get these aha moments about how to add value in your customer's world by thinking about how they have to go about doing things. And you can often find some very inefficient processes that you can do something about. One big service hit comes to mind. A few years ago, Bank of America came up with a new service called Keep the Change. And this allowed customers to round up their purchases to the next dollar and deposit the difference between their purchase and that dollar amount into their savings. Okay? This facilitated saving more money, which was a customer need, while also making it easier for, for the accounting part of making transactions. So Bank of America would have never found this insight had they not studied the process of their consumers to learn of this, uh, what we call a latent need, a, a need that nobody really realizes is there. Then they created a whole new offering around that that differentiated Bank of America in the mind of its consumers. It won a big award for it and also was able to drive new revenues associated with it. So this kind of differentiation is the holy grail for, um, for companies these days, and journey mapping helps companies gain insights to differentiate through understanding how to provide more value to their customers, big things and small things. Okay, great. It's funny you mentioned that Bank of America app or, uh, or, or service, I guess. A recent guest, Shabar Ali from Salesforce, also brought that one up. So are there other examples you can share of companies beyond Bank of America who've had kind of aha moments or made great strides simply through a better understanding of the customer <clears throat> journey map? Yeah, I have, um, the, I have a great story. The best story is about, uh, about coming to an aha moment uh, during uh, the introduction of a customer journey map into the management environment. was when I was working on a, uh, Amtrak's high-speed rail offering, which was a long, long time ago and was one of the first times I'd ever been exposed to customer journey mapping. So in the course of doing this project, there was a lot of consumer research that went on for the various kinds of people who would ride a train, and a journey map was created that showed that there was actually 10 steps on the journey instead of one, the one that they were primarily focused on, which was riding the train. So this caused a huge shift in perspective. And also, I might add, in bu budget allocations, because the management team, through looking at this journey map, realizing that they were over-investing in one touch point, that of riding the train. Of course, they spent a huge amount of money on the train, and they wanted the train to be great. But also, they realized that there were nine other touch points, ranging from building awareness, again, for, for, for the train itself and where, how, to get, how to get to it, to uh, at the very end, where one person might um, you know, want to continue their journey on to something else. And had that customer journey map not been introduced at the board of directors level, I don't know how that program would have come into balance for the true needs and priorities of Amtrak customers. So they can be very, very powerful in helping organizations see the totality of what they're producing and how it impacts their customers. Okay, that's a great example. So, so what might have been something that they would have changed as a result of seeing those insights? One of the big things was the was the business person's lounge. You know, we are used to these things in clubs in airlines, but 
where people go to work before they're catching flights, but they didn't have a great solution, and they realized that there was going to be so many business people moving back and forth um, between these three cities, Boston, New York, and Washington, that the, that the lounges needed to figure much more prominently in the experience of the person and be adequate for, for their, their needs coming as coming and going. And that, that plan wasn't as big as it was after the research revealed what people were actually doing and being forced to do in, you know, in the places that they could, uh, in public places where they might be doing them in the lounge. And it uh, had a big impact on their budget allocations. So you, you talked a little bit about the, the physical experience on the trains. And one of the videos that's on your site at motivestrategies.com you talk about the psychology of customer experience and how attuned our brains are to respond to quote unquote wow experiences. Obviously there are certain things you can do in the physical world to create those wow experiences. How can organizations create the same kind of wow experience in the digital world when there's so much competition for time and attention? Oh God, that is, that's that's the $64,000 question um, <laughs> these days. It is true that we are really attuned to wow experiences these days, and we kind of make it a national pastime to talk about either, you know, um, great experiences or underwhelming experiences, and you definitely don't want to fall into the category of underwhelming experiences, but it, this, this requires, being good at this requires an understanding of what's relevant in your customer's mind and what performance standards, standards you're going to be held to uh, by the best people in the business, so this is the point where your competition necessarily isn't necessarily your direct competition, but some indirect competition for, you know, how uh, something performs. So on the digital front, it's things like how fast does your site load, how intuitive is it, is, is it to navigate. Things that just don't work are brand negative, and you've got to get, you know, these things weeded out as soon as possible or you're going to be dead. I mean, I don't tolerate sites that don't load quickly because I don't have a lot of time, just like you were saying. This is why it's important to deploy the efforts of, of UX designers who know how to anticipate user needs and are, uh, and are trained on doing the research and understanding how to test and prototype and get the, the right solution. It's, it, it becomes a matter of understanding the performance standards, and it's also a matter of understanding how to meet those performance standards at the right places. Because it doesn't matter in every place. It just matters in the places where people are comparing you to an, an, another competitor that you need to be performing in the way they expect. Sure, and and oftentimes, as you mentioned in that video, you're not being compared to your direct competitors, but you're being compared to a site like Amazon, which obviously has amazing resources. Uh, they deploy a new build to production every 11 seconds, at least as of May 2011, <laughs> according to a presentation at that year's O'Reilly Velocity Conference. Uh, so it's a really high bar out there for companies in you know, every walk of life to be able to compete with companies like Amazon, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. So question for you, you have a background in design. Let's talk about design for a minute, because as you mentioned with UX, it can be an integral component of creating su successful customer experience. So Motive has, has performed some research that has linked the importance of having a strong focus on design with well above average business performance. Some companies that you've identified that, that have a strong focus on design are Disney, IBM, Apple, Nike, just to name a few. And what your research found was that those design-centric companies outperform other S&P 500 companies by 228%. What is it about seeing the world through the lens of design that allows these companies to perform so much better than their counterparts? 
I'm, I'm so glad you asked that question because um, design is one of the great enablers of, of corporate strategy. But, but design management is something that's been misunderstood by business people for a really long time. So many, many, many see design as a bunch of creatives getting in the way of business people on a mission to make money. The truth is that companies that deploy design strategically and with the right talent and resources are able to grow faster and with higher margins than their competition. This is because the presence of designers helps them be closer to, to, to customer needs because designers inherently know how to solicit uh, and translate customer needs into, into concepts. And designers' uh, visualization skills help them forge better integration and communications with other functions such as operations or engineering. And so the end product is more compelling from a, from a user needs perspective from an operational perspective, and then the designers will put the special sauce at the end, which is making something very aesthetically pleasing or behaviorally pleasing, and that really uh, allows customers to get a better functional and, uh, and emotional experience out of it. So the companies that you see on our index, think uh, they, they really care deeply about pleasing their customers, and they know that if they invest in getting it right with customers, the returns will be there in spades. And that's what you see in the numbers. Not all companies think this way. And it can be a big battle to get managers, uh, in, uh, especially in fundamentally sort of left-brain companies, very analytical companies, to recognize the value of the right brain, the intuitive, the emotional, the empathetic, the creative, as being um, you know, important business elements to add into a total solution. But um, you see from the numbers, that's why we did that work, that it's, it's really true. And how did you select the companies that were, that you felt had a strong focus on design? Well, you know, I've been in the design around de uh, designers and in the design business a really long time. So we know um, a, a lot of companies and how they're organized. And so we set a, a, a set of six criteria that the companies had to stand up to. One, they had to be publicly traded because we needed them to, to show the long-term impact of investments in design. They needed to have design leadership, an executive in charge of the design function, and it had, a, had to be a design function that was part of the overall governance strategy. In a lot of organizations, you can't find where design fits. You don't know who controls it. You don't know how it operates, that kind of thing. And also, the companies that we uh, included were investing in design, adding staff, adding capabilities, using more design talent, that kind of thing. And then another thing we looked at is what the senior leadership across the board was, was thinking about design. Like you see in a company like Nike, their CEO, Mark Parker, who is in fact a designer himself, is um, very supportive of design and, and talks um, and really you know, walks the walk and, and not just talks the talk. With, um, and so um, those companies, we whittled the companies down from about 75 candidates to only 15 that had those characteristics. And we're hoping to add more in, of course, <laughs> as we learn about them. But they have to sort of meet this criteria in order to be included in the index. Okay, and let me see if I can put you on the spot. Can you name the 15 off the top of your head? <laughs> I can't name the I can't name the 15 off the top of my head. <laughs> okay, but, but we can find some more. Of, you name some of them, sure. but the people would not be surprised because even the public is well aware. Companies like Target, for example, Nike, Apple are very design-forward companies, and and these these are the ones and some other ones that are uh, 
that are interesting. For example, Herman Miller and Steelcase, two furniture companies who have had long, long commitments to design, were in the index as well. And um, you know that surprised some companies. IBM surprised that IBM was in the index, but they've had commitment to design for decades. Yeah, big, big blue. As uh, as you mentioned on, I think a clip from CNBC. It was their their president or CEO at the time who famously said, "Good design is good business." That's right. It's a quote that all designers know. <laughs> yes, we we have had it up on a uh, on a banner here at Three Pillar for a little while. Oh, great! <laughs> so one one thing you talk about often, Janine, is the rise of the service economy. And a stat that I thought was fascinating is that services firms now account for more than 80% of the U.S. economy. And you've written about how the winners in this economy are those that see the value chain as outside in versus inside out. Yeah. Mm -hmm. can, can you explain the difference between those two? Yeah. You know, the service sector, we've been studying this for a really long time. And in, 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 in most developed countries, it far outpaces the manufacturing uh, sector. Yet most of the science around the creation and development of things is in the product domain. And so so uh, services science and, and service development has been uh, kind of lagging, if you will, um, for, for many, many years. But we're trying to, you know, with, with service design standards and so forth, we're doing things a little differently now. But to get to your point about having an out, inside out or an outside in perspective, so companies that have an inside out perspective tend to be worried about what is most important to them in efficiently producing something from an operation from from an operational perspective. It could be like an insurance claim, a mortgage, telecom, cable services, things like that. Many times, the customers the customer needs in these types of large organizations are really of no interest to the management. It's more about how the company needs to organize itself to perform the work involved to get whatever it is, the, the service out to, um, to, to its customer. So, you know, like, tell me who really loves their telecom or cable company these days. You know, they, they don't, they're, they're not that sensitive to customers, and their focus is on how to make it more efficient and, and be able to stand up to their very significant competition, which is, which is an important thing in and of itself. But, but the companies that approach value creation from an outside-in perspective are first and foremost thinking about their customer needs, and in doing so are often able to disrupt entire industries. Think of the success, for example, of Zappos or Southwest Airlines. By thinking differently and listening to their customers, they discover entirely new ways of serving them that helps them differentiate through the special value they can provide by not doing what everybody else is doing and focusing on what makes the customer happy. So a lot of this comes uh, to, you know, the new companies are thinking about this more than legacy-based companies, and it's very, very difficult to turn the ship in a, in a, in a very old company, maybe an old bank or, 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 some, or something that's done the same thing for so for so many years that gets in the way of a lot of this inside out versus outside in thinking and if you're looking to measure kind of that that customer satisfaction or customer happiness what are some of the ways you know other than social listening or or hearing feedback directly through your website or customer service channels that a company might look to measure that customer experience yeah, you know, um, there's uh, that is a, that's also very very important these days because it's one of the first things that people have to do to get a baseline on customer experience. So, all companies seem to be in love with Net Promoter Score at the moment, and it, that is a is a measurement that tells the delta between 
the difference between what, what customers would promote your offering and those who would not promote your offering. So I think this is a really oversimplified way of, 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 uh, of managing customer experience, but I think people like it because it's an efficient measurement. But the fact is that it doesn't really tell you where your system is broken or where it needs to be improved or what people think about it. So you have to have a, a, a lot of different metrics around customer experience. And, you know, like just – just for example, the foundational metrics like how big um, uh, it, this kind of thing speaks to the scale of your system, like the percentage of passengers that are passing through at any given time. You know those kinds of things, just to understand, you know, the scale of it. Then you have perceptual metrics, which really tracks track how people feel about things. It's more like customer satisfaction. And I've always contended that you need to take customer satisfaction scores at every single touch point so that at some point you're going to you know be doing well and at some point it's going to be broken but if you use net promoter score you're never going to see what's broken if you don't have a customer stat score in there at a particular important touch point so that you can see how you're doing and what people um, people think so those are perceptual me metrics and then there's operational metrics which is you know how fast is something getting done you know, how fast is, um, you like, issue resolution, for example, from the time you call to the time you hang up, you know, how long does that take? And people measure that as a way of, of indicating how well they're doing and resolving issues when it when it comes to thinking about how their organization is really performing. And then, of course, there's financial metrics, right? So how, uh, how your customer experience uh, efforts are doing to uh, improve the top line or the bottom line. So you could be doing things, trying to offer them new things or trying to introduce new things, and you want to see what the difference is between, you know, what how your system performed before that new thing was there versus how it's performing um, after some new uh, innovation is there or new offering is there. So there's quite a lot to the metrics part of customer experience, and Net Promoter Score just doesn't, um, you know, do enough to really tell people how they should be managing their customer experience because it is a matter of management and it is a matter of orchestration. And that's the sort of big aha that I think people are learning these days. Customer experience is not a project. It's a way of doing business. And it requires a lot of new infrastructure to be able to manage and orchestrate it effectively. Right. And, and I believe, I, I don't know this for sure, but I think getting a net promoter score is relatively expensive too, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's, it's become like the, you know, the big thing, but um, um, putting all that in place is, is expensive. It's it's a it's a metric and uh, uh, and it requires consultants and it requires technology and it requires uh, you know dashboards and things like that re and and people to be looking at those things. So sure. it, it is a it's it's a operational and cultural change for many companies. Yeah. So so sticking on that front, how big of a role are you seeing new technologies play in achieving positive customer experience in industries like retail, media, and entertainment? healthcare, where you do a lot of work, and where technology is kind of forcing everybody to change all the time. Yeah, I mean, there's no question about it. Technology is playing a huge role. <clears throat> and, um, you know, I, I think we're really in a glut of technology. So the, the thing is not to invent new technologies, but be able to um, use technologies, find the most effective technologies. And that requires you to understand what you want to use the technology for to be to, uh, uh, begin, uh, to begin with. So um, you, you definitely want to be using technology to help um, automate experiences. You know, people want to be able to help themselves, and so these self-service technologies has been, have been really, really effective in facilitating people's getting things done while also taking the human element out of it that actually, when you think about it, needs to be managed 
it's it's not as efficient in many ways. It's probably why people love Amazon is that they don't have to go to the store and they don't have to deal with people. Same way with online banking. But also the technology is providing a really interesting way for us to see analytics that we've never been able to see before. So when when companies have systems that are at scale to be able to see how that's how they're working is is inc- is incredible. Um, uh, so, but I, I think the trick to all this is to understand, you know, what are the key pain points and moments of truth for customers, and deploy the right technology at the right time to facilitate a positive experiences. And this requires that you know what your customers are going through as they use your products and services. So, technology for technology's sake doesn't really add value, but technology deployed to help get something done faster, better, cheaper, whatever it is, always welcome. Like for example, let's take Surrey. I've been experimenting with Surrey a lot, and I I, I find I find it, it's very um, very helpful just to be able to say text so and so, and then speak the message saves so much time and frustration than typing on this little keyboard. So that's the kind of thing I'm talking about, um, knowing you know what's what how to really deploy technology to facilitate a customer need. Okay, so let's say that a company has has gone through their customer journey mapping. They've looked at the customer experience metrics, and they've found that they're, that whatever they're providing is lacking in some form or fashion. Is there a process or there steps they should take to go about kind of transforming their customer experience journey? Yeah, and there are steps involved, and I think um, rather than think about a journey, you have to really think about building a capability in an organization to be able to to manage customer experience across um, lots of journeys. Because you, when you think about a big, uh, you know, a company like a healthcare company or a big bank or or an insurance company or something like that, there's thousands of journeys going on. So you have to be able to um, be ready to have the tools and the processes to really tackle these things. And so what we recommend, of course, you know, we love um, to start starting out in a couple of ways. One, getting a grip on things through understanding, you know, just kind of what your metrics are, t- are telling you about the state of things. And also um, being able to jump in there and do customer journey mapping. But when you get those results, then what happens? And so that's when the transformation pieces start happening, where you really have to engage people in the organization to be able to work on these things. So you have to sort of muster all your process improvement people. You have to muster you know, support from your technology people. Brand plays a big role in customer experience and, and making sure that your touch points are branded. Um, there's a lot of work that companies do in building a customer-centered culture where customers are valued and information about customers is widely shared and discussed and improved and worked on. So there's lots of things that have to be done in order to improve the system that the organization goes through in order to uh, produce their customer experiences. And a lot of times what happens, Will, is that these organizations, because they've grown up in a very siloed way, People don't talk to each other, and they don't work together every day. And this requires brand new levels of collaboration and integration that many companies have never seen before. And this is one of the reasons that you see new companies, companies like Amazon and Zappos and those kind of companies, um, were born in an era where customer experience was king, and they knew that, and they designed their company's organizational structures about serving those needs, and they were outside-in thinking to begin with. So if you're at a at a company that is fundamentally not that way and um, does in, more inside-out thinking, you have an enormous job to do to change all of that. And so that requires real executive support from the top, 
and a lot of budget to change things and to, to deploy new new kinds of people and, and technologies and ways of doing business that will help support customer experience in the future. And from what I can see, people are really getting on this bandwagon. They realize, the, especially in the older companies, that you know this is a, not a trend. This is going to be the wave of the future and that they have to prepare for that and build capabilities in the organization in order to be able to manage customer experience uh, effectively. Either that or they're going to die because those companies, especially new ones that can build themselves in the uh, uh, with the technologies and with the organizational structures and talent and all the things that you need in order to manage it well, will just surpass them. They'll just be faster at doing this, and um, you know they'll just die on the vine. So, as a matter of survival, people are really getting on this bandwagon now. Yeah, that makes sense. And and I mentioned Shabir Ali previously from from Salesforce, a recent guest. They have had a huge push to become what they call a quote unquote customer centric company. Mm. Uh, and you know, uh, essentially, it means you're you're there to serve your customer, and you're also seeing the world through their view as opposed to yours. Which you know, as you mentioned, is probably easier for companies that don't have hundreds or you know decades of years of experience and you know things that that are why they are just because. But they have you know really they're working from a blank slate, so that's where the Ubers and the Airbnbs and you know companies like that can come from, I guess. Absolutely, and you see what kind of valuations they're getting too. This is serious business. <laughs> yeah. Being able to predict what customers want and give them what they want uh, is is very very serious. Yeah, well, yeah, Uber's uh, seventeen billion dollar valuation not too shabby. I, I don't recall what exactly Airbnb's is, but I know it's also giant. Uh, and you know, those are those are also both companies that we've talked about on here before. So I won't bore the listeners with them anymore. But we're running a little short on time. You just gave us some great words of wisdom over the course of the last half hour or so. Any final parting words that you'd like to share uh, before we sign off for listeners out there that would like to drive innovation through a deeper understanding of customer experience? You know, words of wisdom. Well, you know, I guess it's it, my words of wisdom is that it's very important that companies don't stick their head in the sand about the importance of customer experience. It is really the newest battleground in the business environment, and it's not really going to go away. So, so companies really need to develop these capabilities to tr- control their experiences and to be able to create experiences and to be competitive. And so this takes a lot of investment and change for companies, but those that are going to be first and get it right are going to be the companies that are going to maintain leadership positions. It's going to mean everything for success. So I think that's the most important thing is that, you know, get, you, there's no time like now to start and uh, you can get through it. It's it, uh, it, it, there's enough science out there, management science for this to be sort of reduced to a practice that you know it's not a, a mythical thing that you're you're getting at. There's a lot of good people around that understand how to help with customer experience, and and um, it's 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 extremely important for the success of your company to be able to have a capability that works really well, and it takes years to build that. Sure, and and what's on the line is basically your company's survival, or can be. I'll say. Indeed. Okay, great. Well, that's a great note to close on and some great food for thought for all our listeners out there. Uh, If you're interested in finding more about Janine Ray and Motive Strategies, please visit motivestrategies.com. Some great resources there, white papers and articles and the like. You can find Motive on Twitter at at Motive Strategies. That's at M-O-T-I-V Strategies. And you can find Janine on Twitter at at Janine M. Ray. Janine, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Will. It's been my pleasure. Have a great day. You as well. Thanks again to Janine Ray for joining us this week. And thank you for joining us this week. 
Don't forget to tune in to next week's episode of the podcast when we're very excited to have noted Apple analyst Horace Deju on to talk about innovation and the future of mobile, what the post-mobile world will look like, how Apple, Google, Amazon, and others are shaping the future of mobile, and the next frontier of mobile after health and fitness. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you next week.